pray together. Father, we, we come before you this morning, and we're asking now that you would send your Spirit to be with us as we come to your Word, as, as we open our hearts. We pray that you would speak into our hearts, that you would take your Word, your words of grace and the riches of the gospel, and that you would press them into our hearts this morning. We need to see Jesus so that we would be lifted, so that we would be energized for your work in the world. And we pray that here, as we hear your word, that you would prepare us to come to your table and to experience your word, the word of your love and grace. So come and be our teacher. Come and minister your grace to us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, I have a question for you guys this morning. Do you ever question your parents' love for you? Are there ever moments in your life where things happen and you think to yourself, I don't know if they love me? You ever have that experience that you're willing to admit here in front of your parents? Whenever I was a little kid, I had that a lot. You know, times that I would really begin to question and really believe, I don't think my mom loves me. Well, one, it was whenever I did something really bad. Can you relate to that? When you blow it big in front of mom and dad, and you think, oh my goodness, if they find this out, I don't know if they're going to love me. I don't know what they're going to do. They might even kill me. I used to think that. Or sometimes, and probably even more so, when I really questioned my parents' love for me, my mom in particular, was whenever she didn't let me do something I wanted to do. That might be a little bit more prevalent. Do you understand? I mean, can you relate to that? You know, times whenever there's something you really want to do really bad, and mom or dad says, I'm sorry, I just don't think we can do that. And do you ever just want to lash out and say, you don't love me? I used to say that. I can remember saying that to my mom. You don't want me to have fun. You want me to be miserable. That's why you're being like this. Can you relate? I think that there's often times in life where we can know something is true about love, but yet deep down in our hearts, maybe it's a circumstance, maybe it's something we're walking through in our life and we begin to think really at our heart level, they don't love me. That's why this is happening. There's no love for me. And I think one of the ways that we see that play out, especially as we grow into adults, is in our relationship with God. I think most of us would say, most of us who are here today who would uh, define ourselves as believers, as followers of Jesus, I think very quickly we'd be able to say, hey, I really do believe that God loves me. We could get that answer right on a test. We get that concept in our head. But there's so many times in life where we don't believe it in our heart. We're really at the heart level reality down deep in our soul, especially when things are hard in our life, especially whenever we blow it big in our relationship with God, is in those times that we are so prone to forget about God's love and grace for us. This is something we talk a lot about here at Grace Community, because it's very, it's very easy, especially in a Bible Belt culture, to believe the gospel, which is the good news of God's love and rescue for us in Christ, to believe that whenever we begin the Christian life, 
right? It's kind of the basics you need to know in order to get in. But then once you begin living out the Christian life, you move on past that. You move on to, okay, now I need to figure out what I need to do and and all of the ways I need to obey and the ways that I need to grow and I, I need to make progress in the Christian life. And so we leave that focus on God's grace alone. So we say this all the time. The gospel is not just the way that you enter the Christian life. The gospel is also how you grow because the reality, the tendency for all of our hearts is to forget, literally daily, to forget about God's love and grace for us in Christ that is apart from anything that we do. In fact, our hearts are resistant to fully believing in the depths of grace in that way. And so the easiest thing in the world to do is to move past the grace of the gospel and begin to rely upon your own effort to live the Christian life. And when you do that, God feels distant. The Christian life begins to be a burden in your life. One of the things that we're talking about this summer in our sermon series is we're talking about enjoying God. It's a sermon series in the book of Psalms. Each week we're looking at a different psalm. And the psalms are a tremendous resource for learning how to enjoy God. We use that language a lot, enjoying God because it's relational language. You enjoy someone that you're intimate in a relationship with. And that's what God intends for us with Him, to be in relationship where we are enjoying Him. In fact, where He is becoming the deepest source of our delight. That's what He intends for us. And so the question is, how do we grow in intimacy with Him? How do you uh, deepen in your relationship with God whenever He feels distant? And the Psalms are a tremendous resource for helping us to enjoy Him, to grow and deepen in our relationship with Him. Here's what we see in Psalm 103 today. We see that the way that we grow in our enjoyment of God is by learning to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. The way that we grow in our enjoyment and intimacy with God is learning to daily preach the gospel to our own hearts. And we see that in Psalm all the way back in Psalm 103. So let's, let's jump in, Psalm 103. And you see, as you just kind of step back and look at the psalm as a whole, that the psalmist here is trying to call on, his, on himself to praise God. You see that at the very beginning, and then at the end, he's then inviting literally the angels in heaven, the armies of heaven, all of creation itself to join him in his praise to God. He's trying to rouse his heart to a place of enjoyment of God. Now, here's the thing that's key to notice in Psalm 103. Who is the psalmist talking to here? Look again at verse 1 and 2. He says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And then he goes on through the rest of the, of the psalm, and he's talking to the same person, himself. That's right. Isn't that interesting? He's not primarily talking to us, though this is for us to invite us into it. He's not primarily talking to God, though it's very clear that God is present as he's speaking to himself. He's talking to himself. And you see this throughout the psalms. It's kind of rather interesting, is that the psalmists over and over and over will talk to themselves. 
Psalm 42 does this very clearly where he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What's he doing? He's talking to himself. Listen here, soul. Why are you so down? What's happening? What are you believing? Put your hope in God, for he loves you. He's talking to himself. And what's interesting is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great 20th century preacher in England, uh, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. Phenomenal book. Maybe that title alone kind of piques your interest. Spiritual Depression, and a lot of it is drawing on Psalm 42, but he says something really profound in the book and kind of plays it out through the book. He says, most of our problems, most of our unhappiness in the Christian life comes from the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. We are more prone to listen to ourselves than to talk to ourselves. We're all the time listening to ourselves. We listen to our own accusations. We listen to our own miseries. We listen to the the lies that sometimes are from the evil one or from the devil into our life, and sometimes they're just from our own hearts that condemn us. Can you relate to that? Just the voice within that's just saying things like, you're a bad mother. You're a sorry father. Some kind of Christian you are. The voice of accusation that so often is from our own soul. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the whole problem here is the psalmist is teaching us is that we just passively listen to ourselves. We let our own hearts dictate reality to ourselves. And he says what you got to do, and this is what the psalmist are trying to help us to do, is you got to learn to address your soul, to grab your soul by the shirt collar and say, listen here, I'm going to tell you what's true. You believe in lies. You're, you're listening to those things, but it's not true. Let me tell you, soul, heart, let me remind you what is now true of you. And see, that, that's something that you have to actively do. It doesn't just happen. Your soul is not just going to naturally comfort yourself with the truths of God's grace and love. It's not a natural condition. You've got to learn to talk to yourself. Now, here's one important thing to see here. We're not talking about just positive self-talk here. This isn't like Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. Do you all remember that? If you're a little bit older, maybe you do. Where he would sit in front of the mirror and give himself some good, you know, psychobabble self-talk. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. You know, this is not just the the sappy, sentimental, positive self-talk that we see all the time on Facebook. Right? You know, I don't know how you do it. You create those, like, colored boxes, and the writing is just in the middle. I think it looks, it makes it look more, like, formal or rooted in truth. You're somebody. Believe in who you are. Don't listen to those people around you. No, we're, we're, we're in such a psychotherapeutic culture that we're always trying to do that. To give yourself some small talk to say, you, you're somebody, believe in yourself. That's not what the psalmist is doing. It's not positive self-talk. It's taking the truths of Scripture and working them deeply into the heart. That's what he's doing. Throughout the psalm, he's not just saying, hey, you're somebody and doggone it, people like you. He's saying, remind yourself, soul, about who God is. 
about what he's done, about what he feels about you. You see, that, that's what gives it the power. That's what gives it the truth. Is It's not just stuff I'm coming up with. It's not positive thinking. It's not visualizing something in your future. What we're always told to do, it is taking God's revealed word. You see, that's the significance of the Bible, is that it is God saying, here is who I am. It's his revelation of himself to us, just like he says in the passage. He has revealed himself to Moses. He has revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible. And so in order to be able to talk to ourselves and press the truths of Scripture into our heart, you've got to know the Bible. So often we think, as we think about reading the Bible, I think m- many of us think somewhere down deep, I need to be reading the Bible. That's a good thing. That's something that God wants me to do. But I think we have a very superstitious kind of view of that. Kind of like, you know, God wants me to read the Bible and it's just about going and just reading words. And so whenever I take the time to sit down and read my Bible, that God's standing there and going, that's good. I'm glad you're doing that. You know, it's a, it's a very kind of transactional idea. That's not what God intends with us reading the Bible. He wants us to come and to meditate upon his word, to take out the truths about who he's revealed himself to be, and to work them into our hearts, to believe them, to plant them deeply within our hearts so that we begin to believe them. The Bible will do you no good unless you combine it with faith. It's just a reality. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. They knew the Bible frontwards and backwards, and he says it does you no good. Because you don't believe what it says about me. And so in order to be able to speak the truths to ourselves, to use God's truths about who he is and about his love and grace upon our hearts, you got to know it. you got to meditate on it. you got to steep in it. And that is what the psalmist has learned to do. He's talking to himself, but not just positive uh, self-talk. He is actually pounding his own heart with the truths of who God is. So what what is the focus of what he speaks to himself from Scripture here? What does he focus on here? What, What does he use to bring about that enjoyment of God? And it is this, he focuses on God's grace. You see that throughout this psalm? This this is one of my favorite psalms. I know that I say that about every psalm, but I mean it this time. This psalm is so rich as it unpacks the riches of God's grace for us. And as I think about this, as I think about what the psalmist says in here, I just think to myself, if I believe this one-tenth, I wouldn't worry about a thing. I would, I would be so filled with joy. I would be so moved towards other people if I really believed that this was true. That God is really this way as he's revealed? Look at how he just unpacks for us God's grace. And as we just kind of look at this for a minute, just allow your heart to enjoy this. This is who God is. Look at how he describes his grace here. I mean, just right off the bat, in verse 3, he says, talking about God, he's saying to his soul, don't forget all that he does for you. And then he begins to go through this list, and he starts off, the very first one he says is who, that God forgives all your sins. He forgives all your sins. And then, jumping down in verse 12, 
staying with that theme, look at what he says about just the extent of his forgiveness. How completely does he forgive my sins? How how extensive is that forgiveness? And look at how he describes it in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Transgressions, another word for sins. Now, just think about that for a minute. So, this we're in the Psalms. It's all poetry. So, it, it, it forces you to begin to think about these images. How far is the east from the west? It's not a distance that can be measured, right? Because they're directions. He uses an immeasurable kind of distance. Because, you know, if you go this, which way is east? If you go this way to the east, you don't arrive at east. You just can always keep going east. And if you go this way to the west, you don't show up at some spot and there's like a sign that says west, I made it. It's a direction. It's not a point. It's not a boundary. It's infinite is the point. He is using an immeasurable distance to express the extent of God's forgiveness of those who belong to him. Is that not just mind-boggling? You know, he doesn't just overlook it a little bit. He doesn't just say, I'll let this slide. No, he removes it from us infinitely. Just to ponder that alone <laughs> begins to just bring about a freedom in the soul. That that is now true. If you are in Christ, that is true of you now. Past sins, those things that just horrify you that you've done, present sins, and even the sins of tomorrow removed as far as the east is from the west. He also just throughout unpacks his grace, especially his love. Verse 4, he says, who redeems your life from the pit. It's this idea of redeeming is buying out of slavery, lifting out of the, out of the hole. The pit, literally the word in Hebrew, is sheol, it's the grave. And it's this idea that God is always up to this. We find ourselves in a pit, literally in the clutches of death, and God is always coming down into the pit and raising you up out of it. Whatever kind of situation you find yourself in in life, no matter what you are walking through right now that just feels so dark and shameful, like this is never going to be reversed. The thing the psalmist reminds us is that this is what he does. He comes down into the pit and redeems you up out of it and then crowns you with love and compassion. A crowning is this idea of of honor, of bestowing great honor. It's the opposite of shame. In shame, you're you're hidden, you're lowered, you're, you're cut off from the community. But then to be honored and to be crowned with love and compassion is the utter reversal of shame itself. The idea is that this... This is what he does in our lives over and over and over. He satisfies your desires with good things. In verse 7, he says he made known his ways to Moses. And then in verse 8, he quotes this refrain that you see over and over and over in the Old Testament as God's self-revelation of himself. If you remember back in Exodus, whenever Moses asked to see God's face, and he says, you can't see my face and live. But there's a place where I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and my goodness will pass by you. And God passes by him and it's a declaration. It's an amazing passage. It's a declaration of God's character. And this is what he says here. 
This is the, the expression, the full expression of who God is in his character. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's who he is. He is abounding in love to us. He's gracious. When we blow it, all the imperfections of our life, all the ways that we just fall so far short of what he's called us to be, he is filled with compassion and grace towards you. And his love is abounding. Then again in verse 11, this kind of using the immeasurable to describe the extent of his love. Look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Again, you, you don't measure the heavens and the earth. The, the earth is here, and the heavens are like just infinitely above. There's not a spot that you can measure. And again, he's saying, God's love for you is immeasurable. God's love for you and you and you is immeasurable. Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Just this, he's just steeping in the riches of God's love. And he also mentions an aspect of that love is God being our father. You know, it's interesting that J.I. Packer, one of the leading theologians of, of our day, he said, you can tell how someone, how advanced someone is as a Christian how much they understand about Christianity by telling how much they make of God being their father. How much that reality that God becomes your father whenever you come to Christ, how much does that blow your mind? He says that's kind of a measure of your maturity in Christianity. And yet look at what David says here. Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The word there for compassion, the Hebrew word there, it, it can be translated compassion, but it's more, it's more getting at that deep-seated, in-the-bones kind of love that a parent has for a child. Now, if you're a parent, you know what that's like. It's all the way, way down deep in the bones. It's even instinctual. Your love is not a, it's not a choice. You know, with our children, we aren't having to make a choice to love them, and even in spite of, even in spite of, when they blow it big. In fact, when they blow it big, when they disobey, when they wreck their life, it hurts you even more. There's even greater love. There's even greater compassion for them. And that's the kind of love that God has for those who are His. A deep in-the-bones kind of commitment to His children. That's the extent of His love. Now, let me ask you a question. As we see David, paint that picture of the extent of God's love. What does that do in you? How does that affect you? Now, imagine that for some of us, that might be deeply moving. You might feel a, a deep joy welling up in your heart. And if that's so, that's kind of the ideal. That's what we're after. That's what David is after. But imagine for most of us, to see God's love, it feels kind of distant. It feels a little bit more like a concept than a reality. Can you relate to that? At least sometimes, where you hear that and you see that description of God's love for you and you think, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. 
I'm glad God loves me like that, and I'm glad, you know, he's kind of got my back, and I'm glad he's not going to hold me to everything that I do, but what's for lunch today? Do you, can you identify with that just a little bit? It, it just seems a little bit more like a concept rather than a reality that becomes the depth of your joy. Now, here's the question. Why is that? Why does it just seem like a concept rather than something that thrills your heart? I think there's probably a number of reasons. I, want to, I just want to mention two that I think are pretty common. One is we don't think we need it. We don't really, really think that we are so desperate and so broken and so sinful by nature that we desperately need God's grace. A lot of times it's because we're so stuffed with other things. We're so satisfied with the things of this world. we got so many entertainments and stuff and toys and busyness and hobbies and distractions that we got all of these things and we're not able to be aware of the utter desperate need that we have for God. St. Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and restless is the human heart until it finds its rest in you. See, so often we're we're fundamentally restless. That's the nature of being a fallen human being. There's a restlessness in our hearts, but we don't ever perceive that restlessness because we're always satisfying it with temporary candies of this life. And so, so seldom do we begin to perceive our desperate restlessness for God Himself. And so in that place, that place of pride, that place of being stuffed with the things of this world, you don't perceive I need your love, and your grace is life. The psalmist says in another place, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. How do you get to that point? Well, you've got to know you need it. So that might be true for many of us, but there's another thing that's maybe even true for more of us. And it's this, you don't think it's for you. Maybe you can relate to that. You can believe it for other people. Maybe you can even share that for other people as you, as you know people and as they're struggling or you look at other people and you say, yeah, it makes total sense how God loves you. And even whenever people might blow it and you say, God's love and grace for you is so rich. He loves you. God is a God of grace, but not for me. Can you relate to that? Just that sense that that's too good to be true. Almost a fear of going there, a fear of opening yourself up to it, because what if I really believed that, and what if it weren't true? It's incredibly vulnerable to open your heart truly and fully to the love of God. And so many of us, we know, we know, we know how broken we are. We, we know how, how we fail. We know the shame that we carry in our life, and we're just thinking, just at the end of the day, I mean, we probably wouldn't say this out loud, that can't be for me. It can't really be that extensive. It's just too good to be true. So we hold it at a distance. We'll, we'll acknowledge it in our head, but we won't believe it in our heart. You relate to those two? I think probably for most of us it's not one or the other, but it's both and. You know, one, one day I'm on one, the other day I'm on the other. I bounce back and forth between those two. One moment I'm just good, I'm great, I don't need God. And the other moment, I'm like, there's no way he can love me like that. Too broken. Why are we so resistant to grace? 
why are, why are our hearts just kind of got a force field up to the full reality of God's love? It's because at some level we believe it has to be earned. At some level we believe it's got to be up to something in me. There's no way you get love like that without deserving it at some level, right? That's how everything else works in our life. Can it really be true? No. No way. We are resistant to grace. In fact, to receive grace, you've got to be vulnerable. You've got to give up any claims to deserving any of His grace. And we don't like that, especially if you've been working really, really hard. So here's the question. How can this be true? How can what David is saying here be true? How can it be true for you? That's the real question. And here's the answer. Jesus. It's the only way. The only way for these realities to be true of you is by the work of Jesus alone. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to take our place in every way, to be our substitute to do in our place what we can never do for ourselves. He came to live a perfect life in our place, perfectly keeping the Word of God, uh, the law of God, not just to be an example, but to be our substitute. And then He went to the cross to pay for all of our sin. All of God's wrath fell upon Him. The Father turned away from Him in that moment so that we might be embraced by the Father. The only way for these things that David is singing of to be true of us is in Jesus. The only way for God to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west is by laying them upon Jesus. See, in our culture, we can have a kind of a generic picture of God as if he's kind of a loving sugar daddy in the sky. And you know, whenever we, whenever we go wrong and we sin and we do bad things or we make mistakes, we like to talk about it more in mistakes. Whenever we do that, then God, just because he's just loving and gentle and kind of like Santa Claus, he just overlooks it. If that's your view of God, it will not transform your heart. If God were like that, if God were just like, you know what? I'm merciful. I'm just going to overlook these sins in your life. Well, he would be merciful, but he would not be holy, and he would not be just, and he would not be the high king. It would be less than the real God. And a sugar daddy God will not change you. You see, the reality is God cannot just forgive sin. He's got the problem. He wants to be merciful because he is merciful. He wants to show grace. But how? Because he's He's just and He's righteous and He's holy and He must punish sin. How can God remove our sins as far as the east is from the west? Only in Christ. Only through the cross. Only in that moment can He be fully loving and graceful and yet fully just and righteous at the same time. The only way for Him to redeem us up out of the pit is if Jesus goes all the way down into the pit, into the grave so that we can be raised up. The the only way for for Him to love us, to know us all the way to the bottom and yet love us to the skies, the only way that that's possible is if He turned from His perfect Son. It's the only way. The only way for Him to love us from everlasting to everlasting in spite of all that we do is if He were to forsake His Son on the cross. You see, all of it is only possible through the work of Jesus. And so as we look at the gospel, and we say this a lot, 
You know what the gospel shows us as we meditate on the gospel? It shows us you are more wicked and sinful than you even realize. Relax. You're worse than you know. It doesn't sound like good news initially, does it? It's true. As we look at the cross, what it shows us is that the only way for me to be reconciled to the Father is through the death of the perfect Son of God. So it's the ultimate humbler. I got nothing. All my righteousness, all of my good works, all of my sincerity, it can't bring me to the Father. The cross shows me that. So it humbles you all the way down to the depths. But yet, at the same time, as we look at the cross, we see that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we've ever dared to dream. Because the power of His cross is so extensive, it can never be added to. It never needs to be added to. It's so full and complete, and it's outside of us. You see, the gospel shows us that we are accepted apart from anything in us. And we're always thinking you've got to add something to it. But as we are continually meditating on the truth of the gospel and seeing it's got nothing to do with me, you know what it begins to do? It begins to unlock the reality of God's true love for you. Only in the cross. You cannot measure it by your own goodness, but instead by the goodness and the work of Jesus in your place. That's what it shows us. Martin Luther once said, who led the great Protestant Reformation, he said this principal article, this, this the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. It's the heart of it all. Wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists, most necessary is it therefore that we should know this article well. You've got to know the gospel, not just here, but to constantly be meditating upon its depths and working it out in your own heart. Most necessary is it to know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. It's Martin Luther right there. We need to have the gospel pounded into our hearts continually. You never move past it. And it's not enough just to generically say, God is love. Because down deep we know He can't love me. And that's true, apart from Christ. But the more deeply that we meditate on the reality of the gospel, the more that it unlocks the true reality of God's love and grace for you. Finish with just an example from my own life. You know, I tend to wake up each morning in one of those two places that I mentioned. I either wake up in a place of being like, you know, I'm good, I got this today, not aware of any kind of need, or I wake up in the morning, a little bit more, more common, I wake up in the morning just feeling like I'm behind, feeling like just low, like how can God love me? Just kind of waking up with like a residual guilt, like I'm just not good enough, how could God love me? Just kind of low level, you know, that kind of operates in my life. And you know, whenever I'm at that place, which is the default? for me. One of those two places. Either I don't need him or I just don't deserve anything. When I'm at that place, you know what I can't do? I can't love anybody else. Even my attempts at love are just ways to get something for myself. I manipulate people, use people. It's not real love, and there's no joy, right? There's no power. There's no spiritual power in that. You know what I have to do each day? What I have to do if my day is going to be a day where I am operating out of joy and where I am loving and serving other people. The only way for that to happen is I've got to see the gospel. 
So you know what I do? What I have to do? There's a couple places in the, in the scriptures. In fact, there's a number of places where I go where the gospel is just so explicit that I can't talk myself out of it. You'd be surprised at how deeply my soul tries to talk myself out of the truth of the gospel. Really? Can that really be that true? I mean, surely it's not that extensive. That's what my soul's saying. So what I do is I take these places that are just so explicit with the extent and the reality and the beauty of the gospel, and I just pound it into my heart. I seep in it. I meditate on it until my heart gets hot with Christ, until my heart begins to burn with Him. And you know what? In that moment, the whole perspective changes. I begin to be inclined towards other people. I begin to, to interpret the circumstances of my life not as God abandoning me, but rather His fatherly care in my life. It literally changes the perspective in a moment. But you know what? Three hours later, it's gone. What do I have to do? I have to go back to the gospel. I got to preach the gospel to my own heart. That's what the psalmist teaches us. Don't just go about passively listening to yourself because yourself is not naturally going to teach you about God's love and His grace in Christ. You've got to become active about preaching the gospel to yourself. You've got to become skilled with it. You've got to know it. You've got to meditate on it. It's not enough to hear it once a week. You've got to be able to use it on your own heart. Would you do that? Would you... Start to learn. I mean, actually take something we say here and then go out there and just do it. Just do it. Use the gospel on your heart. If you have questions about how to do that, let's talk. I love to have those conversations. This morning, we get to very practically apply this as we come to the communion table. Now, again, this is not preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is God preaching the gospel to our hearts. That's what communion is all about. What, what do you know? The heart of communion is about what? The broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. At the heart of the Lord's Supper is the gospel. And Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he's about to go to the cross. He gave this ritual to his disciples and all of his followers, and he says, do this so that you remember the gospel. So we come to this table to have the gospel pounded into our hearts. You know, sometimes you come to the, to the communion, you're trying to figure out if you're worthy or not. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's my natural thing to do. Am I, am I understanding it enough? Am I good enough? Don't do that. Just come needy and hungry and just receive His grace. Let Him work it down into your heart. Calvin called the sacraments God's handles of faith, something to grab onto when your faith is so flimsy. That's what he gives us this to us for, to work deeper into our hearts, trust in the gospel. So let's pray together a prayer of confession that you'll find in your hymn books on the, I think it's page three. Page three in your hymn books. We always pray a prayer of confession as we come to communion because confession and repentance loads the heart. It it. It gets you in touch with your need of His grace, and then we come to receive it at His table. Let me just encourage you. This is not just a responsive reading. Make this your prayer. Offer this confessing your sins to the Lord. I'll give us a few moments at the end to confess silently to the Lord. Let's pray the top prayer together as one. 
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us change what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Now take a few moments to confess your sins silently to the Lord. Father, it's true that we are so very prone to move on from the riches of your grace and to doubt your love for us. When we do that, just the worst begins to come out of our hearts. So we confess the ways that we have walked in unbelief, the ways that we have been cold towards you and towards other people, the ways that we've been selfish and used others for our own needs and our own desires. And, Lord, in the ways that we have neglected to live for you, Lord, we are just so enamored with the things of this world, and we we just tend to go through our lives just living for ourselves, our own pleasure, our own joy. We just confess all of that to you and pray that by the powerful blood of Jesus, you would just wash us at the deepest parts. Renew us in the gospel at your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.